We look forward to uh, having an opportunity to visit with some of you. We do have a display set up over in the student lounge. If any of you would like to talk to us about our ministry, WEF Ministries is a church planning ministry dedicated to the evangelism of the world through, the, through God's tool for evangelism today, which centers in the local church. A lot of times we get so excited about what God is doing in and through us, and we forget that God's major plan today is the local church. If we lived back in the Old Testament days before uh, the time of Christ came, when uh, g g the nation Israel was here on the earth, uh, as God was using that, anybody could have said very easily or quickly, God's plan for the day and age at that time was the nation Israel. And for God's work to be done, uh, it was done in the context and in and through the nation Israel. Today we live in the church age. And it's very exciting for us sometimes to see what God is doing. And sometimes it's very disappointing for us to see some of the problems that exist among some of our local churches and in some of our local churches. But no matter how big the problem is, it's simply a tool of Satan to distract us from the full realization that God's plan for ministry in the day and age in which we live centers in the local church. And we at WEF Ministries are committed to that local church concept. And we could tell you uh, more about how we do that, but I'd like to spend the time this morning talking to you about something the Lord taught me in the last few years that changed my whole thinking about the ministry. And about serving the Lord. I'd like to read in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. If you turn there, and I'll read the last four verses of, of the ninth chapter of Matthew, which is a very normal, typical passage to be read when you're talking about missions. In fact, when I started uh, working for WEF Ministries and traveling and speaking concerning missions, uh, I wanted to come up with some, quote, good missionary sermon, so this was a passage that I like to turn to. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now my brother and I grew up in Tennessee in a small church out in the country. A lot of people think we grew up in the hills and hollers, but we were actually not from the hollers in Tennessee. We were from the flatland areas. But when we grew up out there, one of the big emphasis of our church and our involvement in the Lord's work was a concern and interest in what God was doing in missions around the world. But today I want us to get our mind focused back on the fact that God's work is worldwide. And it starts where you are. Notice the emphasis in verse 37 and 38. That emphasis is on the word harvest. Three times in verse 37 and 38 the word harvest is used. And we need to understand that the harvest is not simply talking about going out and witnessing to somebody and get them saved. The harvest in the, in the work of God here views the whole area of ministry from the time we first began to contact somebody, plant the seed, cultivate in water until the time when God brings the increase and we do the harvesting. But you see, in God's work... He's concerned about the whole harvest field. We grew up on among farmers and we knew that in early March, the farmer hit the field with his plow. 
But do you know what that field was? It was a harvest field. Now, he wasn't harvesting right then, but he was working in a harvest field. And God says he needs laborers in the harvest field wherever he is. Now, can anybody here tell me where the harvest field is, according to the scripture? Now, I don't mind asking questions if you don't mind answering them. So, if you know the answer, go ahead and tell me. Where does the Bible say the harvest field is? The world. Okay, that's pretty good. Does that mean, and maybe you can correct me, does that mean that every place in this world, every single individual country in the world is a part of God's harvest field? Every place on every continent. Is that right? Does that mean that if we could tell you about a place this morning, we can tell you about a place where there are no churches and there are no missionaries. And as far as we know, no Christians, at least no Christians living there, even though Christians may go visit or something for a part of the time, if they go, I don't know that. No Christians living there, no churches. No missionaries, no preachers. Do you think if I could tell you about a place like that, we should be concerned about sending missionaries to get something started? How many agree with that? Do you agree? All right. The place it is is the Antarctic. Now, I, tracked, I tripped you, right? But I did it for a purpose. Why should we not send missionaries to the Antarctic? Well, the people don't live there, right? There are some people who may go stay for scientific purposes for a short time, but nobody lives in the Antarctic. So, there is a point. The reason that we don't send missionaries to Antarctica is because there are no people there. So therefore, the harvest field is not places in the world, but what? People. Now, you see, I did that to illustrate it to you. That we need to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ because God's concern is for people. You may be surprised to find out that when it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, He wasn't talking about loving California. Did you know that? Now, He was talking about loving and doing a loving act of sacrificial provision of salvation for people. When, they, when he talks about the world, he talks about people. And we need to get that in our minds, that God wants us to be concerned about people wherever they are in the world, which includes right here. And I'm not trying to get everybody to go all over the world to foreign mission fields. What I want to do is people come to the place where they're saying, I am willing to be a laborer in God's harvest. Which brings us to another question. Where do I labor? Well, the answer is not where do I labor, but who decides where I labor? And the verse tells us there is a Lord of the harvest and the Lord of the harvest decides where you labor. What do I do in God's harvest field? Do I prepare soil? Do I sow seed? Do I cultivate and water? Do I harvest the increase? I don't produce the increase. I know that. I've never saved anybody yet, have you? See, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Don't get too excited sometime about what we have done, because when we have faithfully done what we should do, and God produces the increase, we can say, why are you so excited and proud of yourselves 
because you've only done what any obedient servant should have done. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to cool anybody's excitement. But I do believe we have to be careful about building any ministry and anything we do on excitement and emotions. Let me tell you what the Lord really taught me out of this passage in verse 35, 36, 37, 38 here. I remember the day that I picked up my Bible up and I was doing a lot of studying and I came up what I thought was one of the greatest messages I had ever heard on Matthew chapter 9 verses 35 to 38. The message was great for several reasons. One, it had good, three good points right out of the text. Now you can't, as they say, you can't get a lot better than that. And it seemed to be so practical and so applicable, taken straight from the text. Verse 36 says, when, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, when he, what? Saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. When he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, he saw them in their need. He didn't see them as we see multitudes. How many of you have ever seen a multitude of people? But let me ask you a question. Did you see that multitude the way God sees them? Most of the time, if you get on any of the freeways in California, I've learned already, you see a multitude of people. And it's a good example of how we view multitudes. Because when you see a multitude of people in a supermarket, in a shopping center, at a football game, at a basketball game, a volleyball game, or on the freeway, you look at people one of two ways. Either they are people who can help us, or people who can get in our way. And that's about the only thing we look at most of the time. But God sees people as sheep without a shepherd. When someone says something to you that you don't appreciate, how do you see that person? The same way God sees them? Ah, sure, what they say may hurt, but they are people who are in need of what we can show them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we could see, so the first point of my message was, if we could see the people in the world the way God sees them, which brings us to the second point, he was moved with compassion on them when he saw them. So the second point is, if I could see people the way God sees them, then I could feel the compassion similar to what God feels for the needs of the lost. Now, I thought that was pretty good. I first of all need to what? See the needs. And secondly, I need to feel the compassion. Which would bring me to the third point, which he talks about in verse 37 and 38. I'd be willing to be a laborer in the harvest field wherever he sent me. I'd be willing to do whatever he wants me to do right where I am. But the thing that's keeping me from it is what? Well, evidently, the thing that keeps me from it is I don't see the needs the way he tells me to see them. And I don't feel the burden or concern for the loss the way God feels. Now... I don't want to ask you to raise your hand, but isn't this true? The way we felt a lot of times is that if one thing could happen, it would really get me going for the Lord. And that is if I could really somehow in my own heart and life and mind get the true burden and concern for the needs of the world. In fact, I've been in churches where week after week at every prayer meeting, they were requesting, and people are getting on their knees and say, Lord, give this church and each one of us in it a burden for the lost so that we'll be involved in witnessing. Now, let me tell you what happened to me 
or what I discovered that changed my whole view of the ministry. I discovered it by noticing something in this passage that I remember learning in the first grade. How many of you ever went to first grade? How many of you learned how to count? You did, all right? Tell me this then, in your, when you're counting and you come to 35, what comes next? Boy, what an intelligent group. Or maybe make it a little harder. If you're counting, what always comes right before 36? 35. That's good. Now, verse 36 says what? When he saw the needs, he was moved with compassion, and then he prayed, send forth labors in the harvest. Now, if my message was correct, and my viewpoint of the ministry was correct, the first thing that I would need is to see the need, right? The second thing I would need is to feel the burden of compassion. The third thing I would need is to go. But the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, living as a human being, experiencing what he said here in verse 36, he saw the need, right? And in verse 36, he felt the compassion. In verse 37, 38, he was preparing to go. But what was he doing in verse 35? Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Sounds like he was already going, doesn't it? And it's interesting, in the context of the passage, as you look at the chronology here, he was going first, wasn't he? And when he went, he saw the need. And when he saw the need, he was moved with compassion. And when he was moved with compassion, he prayed for more people to go. Now, that sounds a little different than what I preached the first time, right? I came up with a great question. Why did he go in verse 35 then? Why was he out preaching and teaching and meeting the needs of people, taking the message to the people in verse 35, before the scripture says in the chronology, before he saw the need and before he was moved with compassion, he was already going. And then I remembered, what is the major theme in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, I came to do the will of him that sent me. In fact, notice in Luke chapter 4, I'd like to read a verse there. In Luke chapter 4, I'll read two verses, verse 42 and 43. I want you to follow real close because sometimes when I get excited, I misread something. So if I read it wrong, you can point it out to me. Luke chapter 4, verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place, and the people sought him. And they came unto him, and they stayed or begged him that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I have a great burden and concern for the others. Is that right? Why did he say, I must preach the gospel to other cities? I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities because I've been sent. You see, Jesus Christ, I believe that the Bible teaches that the major, primary, motivating purpose in which Jesus, for which Jesus Christ came to this earth, and he went to the cross, and he died on the cross for my sin, was not a great burden and concern for me. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe the Bible says he acted in love toward me, right? 
But the reason he did it, primarily, first of all, because the father told him to do and he wanted to please the father. He was saying over and over again, I do always those things that please the father. I do nothing of myself. The one great desire and purpose of his life that motivated him to do everything he did on this earth was a desire to please the father because he loved the father. And the Bible tells us, I believe, that we are sent to this world, don't you? I'm not talking, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about every one of you being sent to Africa or Asia or Antarctic even. But you're sent to the world, people, and if you realize that God has sent you to people to take the message of God of the benefits of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, of Christ to all mankind. God has given you that commission to take that message to Him. And He also said this, and I want you to remember this if nothing else you ever remember. He says, if you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. Now, what if... I know he has sent me. How many of you know that he sent you? Let me see your hands. Well, those of you who don't know it, let me, let me give you a little lesson from the scripture. I can just give it in one word if you want to. I can quote from Mark 16, 15. I could quote from Matthew. But simply this. Go! Now, how many of you have been heard the command to go? All right, most of you have by now, right? We've heard the command to go. It's applicable to all of us, correct? If I'm not going, what's the reason? Now, we don't like to say this, right? But the reason is I don't love him enough. You say, no, I'd rather go the other way and say, the reason I don't go is because I don't have enough burden. Well, you see, here's the way we do it. And this is the normal approach to evangelism in our churches today. We all want to go, right? We all really want to be involved in witnessing, but we are, we're, we're just not doing it. And we know the reason is what? Well, I'm just not burdened and concerned enough for the lost. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, Lord, give me a burden for the lost and help me be concerned enough for the lost. Even if I cry every time I think about somebody being lost, at least I'll go then, right? Now, don't get me wrong now. I'm not opposed to you being concerned for the lost. I think you ought to be. But we get on our knees and we say, Lord, give me a burden. And we get up and we don't go any more than we did before, right? And then we, so we have another prayer meeting. We say, Lord, I still need that burden. And if you want me to go, please give me that burden. And we pray day after day after day. Now, let me see. We really want to go, right? And we know the reason we're not going is because we don't have a burden. And we asked God to give us a burden, right? And he didn't do it. So whose fault is it? <laughs> you know, I don't find very many people that want to admit what we've actually done. But we have come up with a way, without ever admitting it, but we have excused ourselves for not being the kind of witness that we ought to be. Because we've made it God's fault. Let me tell you this. If you're not regularly serving the Lord as a labor in his harvest field, being a witness in whatever aspect of the ministry God has for you, 
then the reason is simply this. It's not God's fault, it's yours, and it's because you don't love him enough to do what he says regardless. How many of you believe that God commands you to read and study your Bible? How many believe that? Well, what if you don't feel like reading and studying your Bible? You say, well, I get on my knees and say, Lord, please help me want to study my Bible. Now, you don't have to pray for God to help you want to do it. You say, God, give me the strength to do what I ought to do. But I'm going to do it anyhow. Because why? Because he told me to do and I love him. Let me ask you this. Is that enough motivation? Do I have to come up with some emotional stirring and excitement that will get me out? You know, it's, and I think it's exciting to hear some of the reports of, of salvation through some of your witness and testimony. But let me say this. Here's what happens to most of us. Uh, right, right now I watched um, the World Series last night. And most of you know a little, a little about baseball, don't you? Now, let's see. If I am a batter... And my stand at the plate, getting ready for the pitcher to throw the ball, what's my purpose? Swing the bat? Look good while I'm swinging the bat, right? <laughs> Hit the ball? Now the purpose is to get a hit, right? When I'm at the plate, uh, the purpose is to get a hit. The longer, the better. <laughs> but the purpose is to get a hit. Now, if I stand at that plate and I get a hit one out of ten times, what's my batting average? Anybody intelligent enough to know that? A hundred. Good. What if I hit it one out of twenty times? Fifty. Now, if I have a batting average of fifty, what do you think is going to happen? Actually, what will happen, either I will get discouraged and quit, or somebody will help me. <laughs> quit. <laughs> because anybody who fails too often will always do what? Get discouraged. And usually they will quit. Now, let me ask you this. If we, if we don't understand evangelism correctly, we can easily get caught in the trap of getting discouraged and quit because we are not successful enough. Now, let me say this. There's some people that just can go on a little bit of success. But most of us are made that if we get discouraged enough, we'll what? We'll quit. And if it, it's easy to discourage us if we're unsuccessful. Now, most people, when I ask them this, what is the main purpose you're supposed to accomplish when you go out and take the gospel to someone? Almost everybody will say to see him get saved. Now, please don't get me wrong. I think we should be really heart concerned for people to see them saved, right? If we love God, he wants, he said, he sent us, he, we should want him to see saved. But let me tell you this, we need to be careful because that may not be the number one primary reason. Let me ask you this. If my purpose, my major primary purpose in witnessing is to see someone saved, what percentage of success do you think I'll have? Huh? One out of ten? One out of twenty? 
What if I had one out of 50 to get saved? Now, would you call that a pretty good batting average? We didn't even figure that one a while ago, right? Some of these uh, math wizards can figure out what that batting average would be. But I can tell you what will happen. Normally, most sane Christians who get involved in evangelism, who have as their total occupation in mind and ministry is to see results in the lives of people. And don't get me wrong, I want results. But if that's my major, primary, overall purpose, I will have a very, very low success, low percentage of success. I'll have a lot a rate of failure, and failure will tend to do what to me? Discourage me, and if I get discouraged enough, what will I do? Now, I can be excited if I go out and I witness, and that one gets saved. I get so excited, and for two or three weeks, or a month, or two months, I can keep going, right? But after one, two, three, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty, forty failures again, I begin to mope, right? And what do I finally do? I may quit until somebody comes along with a fired up sermon or a challenge and gets me stirred up. And here I go and I witness again. And if I get success, I'm on top of it. If I get failure, I crawl under the table. Did you know that most Christians in their witnessing are so up and down, they look like yo-yos? That's not God's plan. You say, well, how do you cure that? Well, let me say this way. The Bible teaches that my number one purpose in the world, in all my witnesses and everything, is to magnify and exalt in the eyes of everybody I've talked to, my Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you this. How often can I be successful at that? One hundred percent. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we get the correct viewpoint off of the humanistic influence that the world has put on our Christianity, that man is the center of everything and all we have to do is, is center everything we do in what we accomplish for man. And the Bible says God's the center of the universe and everything is mainly centered in, in Him. And my life and my ministry and my service need to be centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. What motivates me to go? He does. Where do I get my strength, my energy, and my understanding to go? From Him. Who accomplishes the results? Him. What's my responsibility? Be faithful to the one I love. And willing to go and willing to do. Whether I'm charged up or not charged up. Whether I'm excited or not excited. But I can go day and night. And I can go to Africa or China or Antarctica or wherever if I know that God is sending me there. And I'm going primarily, first of all, for what reason? Because I love Him and want to obey Him. When I get there, what will happen? I will be ministering His Word to people. And the same thing will happen to me as it does in this historic experience of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I'm preaching and teaching and working and talking and witnessing among the people, I will what? See the need. And when I see the need, my heart will be moved compassion. And I'll do the same thing Christ did. I'll come back to the churches and to the schools doing my best to get more laborers for the harvest field. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest. Notice, it doesn't say... 
Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will burden more people to go. It says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would what? Send more laborers. I believe he's already sent them today, don't you? Do you know anybody who's been sent? How many of you know anybody that's been sent? I'm going, to, I'm going to see if you'll do something. How many of you here today will be willing to commit yourself to pray for one person in this school? Pray for one person in this school that they would allow God to work in their life to change them to be everything they should be in preparing and doing and get involved right where they are and wherever God sends them later as a laborer in God's harvest. How many of you will be willing to pray for one person? All right? It's good. Now, I want to help you pick that one. All I want to do is give you a little guideline. Will you pick the one person in the whole school you can change? Okay? Who's that going to be? It's yourself. And that's your number one concern. Am I willing to be obedient out of love for my Lord. Let me tell you what happened to me last week. Three or four weeks ago, I preached this same concept in a church. And a lady came up to me afterward. And she said, I don't like what you said tonight. She said, you are trying to make me feel guilty. For not witnessing and serving the Lord. And, I, and she said, the reason I don't do it is I'm bashful and shy and timid and I can't talk to people. And I don't know how to walk up to people and start talking to them about the Lord. And you know what I thought? She's sure not bashful when she came to talk to me. <laughs> Let me tell you, it doesn't make any difference how bashful you are. If you love Him, you'll do what He says. And if you don't do what He says, there's only one major reason. I don't love him enough. You see, all I'm trying to do today in our thinking is trying to make each of us come face to face with the fact, two facts. One, that we should not try, keep trying to come up with everything we can to excuse ourselves for not being obedient children to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need to challenge ourselves not to be dependent on emotional feeling to serve the Lord. Because the more dependent you are on emotions, emotions can excite you. I know people who come and said, I believe God wants me to be a missionary. I'm excited about it. I love Italians or I love Germans or I love the people in Africa or I love the people in the jungles of Brazil. And I just can't wait because God's given me such a love. I've got to go. And they get there. And they find out that the people, whether they're Italians or Brazilians or jungle tribes or city people, they find out that the people there really don't want them there. And you know that some of the people are not kind to you sometimes. And you wake up one morning and you walk out among the people and everybody says, why don't you go home? We don't like you. We wish you would leave. And their emotional burden is gone. And what happens to a missionary when that happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens to a lot of them. They're on the next plane home.
Some of them are too stubborn to quit, so they stay there and live miserable lives hating the people that they're supposed to be there to love. And others finally understand that they had the wrong focus. Their primary focus should be on the Lord. And if He wants me here, it doesn't make any difference how much they don't want me here. Paul says, I am willing to be, to spend and be spent for you, though the more I love you, the less you love me. So what? If God sent me here, that's where I want to be. <coughs> Let me challenge you this morning. To get out of business with God. I don't want to deter any of you from being concerned for the lost. In fact, I believe every one of us need to be more concerned for the lost than we are, right? We need to have a greater burden. But don't sit and wait for the burden to do something. Someone told me once, well, I agree with you. I don't have to have a burden to go, but God's got to give me burden so I know where to go. Well, that's the same old excuse again. You're waiting for something to move you, right? Let's see. The Apostle Paul had the greatest burden and concern and love for what group of people? Huh? The Jews, right? Who did God send him to? But wait a minute. I thought I had to have a burden to know where to go. Did you know that Paul did not have a single burden for Gentiles? He didn't even have a burden for Christians. The only burden he had for Christians before he was saved was dragging to jail. After he was saved... His major concern was to see Israel saved. And God says, you're a chosen vessel for me to go to the Gentiles. And what did Paul do? Lord, please let me go to the Jews. No. He'd already said, what do you want me to do? And whatever God said, he was. He did it. In the book of Hezekiah, I'll close with a passage there. Not in the book of Hezekiah, but the story of Hezekiah. You were, going to, you were looking for it, weren't you? In, in Hezekiah chapter 21, no, in uh, Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles chapter 21, I'll find it sooner or later. I can't even find it myself now. Maybe I'll have to quote it if I can't find it, right? May not be first chapter twenty one even. Well here it is, chapter thirty one and verse twenty one. I knew I had something right somewhere. It's bound to be, it's good to have something right, even if you're all wrong. Second Chronicles chapter 31, verse 21, talking in verse 20, And thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah, and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the Lord and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. Whatever God has told you to do, don't wait for a burden 
or a concern or a feeling before you do it. Whatever God has told you to do, you do it how? With all your heart. For consider how great things he has done for you. Shall we pray our Father?